Welcome to the Seven Innings Podcast. We've uh, almost got the whole crew with us. I'm Beth Mullen. So glad to be back with you. Michelle Smith, Amanda Scarborough, Jenny Dalton Hill, Caleb Bro, and Jen Schroeder. Got a terrific show lined up for you this week. We're going to preview some of the big games to come now as we turn the calendar over into April. We're going to take a little deeper dive into the impact of the four-game series. We're going to talk some Florida Gators and also uh, celebrate opening day, the mailbag shagging stats, and of course, hand out our player of the week honors. My first nominee, by the way, for player of the week is Michelle Smith for the job she's done hosting the show the last two weeks. I I can't thank you so much. I, but you know what? My left, my arm is, I got to go to the bullpen. So I'm so glad you're back. I just, woo. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I I was starting to feel a little Wally Pippish. I said, I better get back there. They're going to stop missing me. Lou Gehrig. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, we got a, we got a good show. Let's dive dive right in. uh, And you can follow along at seven innings podcast on your social media to get your lineup card. We'll just go around the horn here with some news and notes, what we saw out on the road. Um, I know Shro, you were, uh, you and Amanda were following very closely uh, the head to head showdown on social media between ASU and Washington after the squeeze play hot box walk off. How are we referring to that whole scene? Well, I think Amanda may have been sleeping during it because it was one of those Pac-12 after dark specials, you know, (laughs) where Beth, you and I are probably the only ones up, maybe Kayla uh, watching the game. Everyone else is asleep during the good stuff in the pack. But ASU met up with Washington, obviously a huge series, Washington coming off of a two-game sweep of Arizona and Arizona State coming up of a four-game sweep by UCLA. They meet up Friday night. It comes down to the bottom of the seventh. First and third play, you've got Kendra Hackbarth on third, who is a great runner. They attempt to squeeze bunt with Maddie Hackbarth at the plate. He's one of their biggest RBI producers. She misses the squeeze. Morgan Flores throws down to third base. It turns into a rundown where two people end up on third base. Uh, but Sis Bates tagged the lead runner and not the trail runner. And, and I did talk to Amanda about this. I got a flashback from like a 14U practice. I'll never forget Steve Conroe yelling, tag the trail runner, tag the trail runner over and over. Um, Sis ends up running the trail runner back and Kendra is able to make it home. There was huge drama on the field and on Twitter between the two programs. It turned into a whole weekend event that softball really got to watch. People were popping their popcorn following it. It turned pretty brutal, but Arizona State actually ended up taking that series from Washington in the pack. Uh, it, it It was pretty crazy, guys. Amanda, what did you think of what happened both on the field and off the field between those two programs? Well, off the field, it's not, there's nothing like waking up to about 150 text messages, you know, so you got to comb through the text messages. It was all about the play. I got to be able to watch the video when I woke up that next morning. Um, But I, I know that Washington thought that it was controversial, but I think if you know the rule and you understand the rule book and you talk to umpires, there really wasn't anything controversial about it. So they did put out that tweet and there was some back and forth between ASU and Washington, but at the end of the day, the umpires got the call, right? So I know that we're usually hard on umpires, but I think that we need to give them credit in this situation for, for doing the right thing, Beth. All right. I'm not sure if the episode is going to be Amanda sleeping through the PAC 12 after dark, or I think it might be tag the trail runner. That's the leader in the clubhouse for, for today's episode. Uh, What else did we see around the country? And here's something interesting. So basketball on the men's and women's side has moved away from RPI. Is it time for softball to consider a new metric? They use something called net, which is a, a lot better than the RPI. And you guys were talking about it on the podcast this week. Love the Mac, the Mac. Love talking about upstate New York teams like Canisius. Uh, but I don't know if Canisius and Fairfield are top 10 RPI schools, and they are actually listed uh, as such this week. So um, RPI and, and with all the metrics that we now have available in more and more numbers, I think it might be time to consider something beyond the RPI. What else is going on out there, folks? Uh, I'm going to jump in real quick, BMO, and I agree with that because let's 
face it, if the season were to end right now, there's a possibility that Fairfield could host a regional and a super regional. So <laughs> to me, that's just a little bizarre. Now, granted, yes, I, I think that there's obviously something going on in the uh, computer program there. But to me, the most important important metric is, is going to be strength of schedule and the eye test. And, you know, when you're seeing those top clubs, the ones that really are deserving of hosting a regional and a super regional based on the schedule they have played, who's been, you know, thrown in the fire versus who's been dancing on the outside of the fire. Um, and, and those that have, have done a really good job. Uh, Michelle, you bring up the eye test and that's a great point. I mean, you look at Oklahoma and eye test, they are like the number one team without a doubt, but with the RPI, you could see them at like something like an eight or uh, a nine and they could lose a, if we were in a normal year, they could lose a host position. So I think the RPI can't be everything. And the other thing that's super interesting is the RPI doesn't account for how many games you've played, because obviously these teams that we're talking about, they're all of a sudden in the top 10, they've only played like three or four or five games so far. So just not a ton to go off of. So it's, it's a work in progress. I think, what do you think, Jenny? Well, and I also think this year is very unique because the Big Ten's only playing themselves. And so it's hard to get garner where do they fit into this whole conversation because the opponents they play will not play anyone else within the rest of the top tw- of the RPI. So for me, that's going to be a big kick too to figure out where do they fit in knowing that they just play one another. Well, the good thing is if you're into the eye test, you will be able to watch a lot of games coming up on the uh, ESPN networks, a little April preview. Now, as we turn the calendar uh, coming up this month on our air, Oklahoma, Texas, Northwestern, Michigan, UCLA, Oregon, and UCLA, Washington, Florida, Alabama, and Duke, Florida State. So a lot of fabulous matchups as we uh, we move a month away from the mayhem and uh, dive deep into our ESPN programming. Very excited on the road to the Women's College World Series. Uh, Oklahoma, Texas, that, that may be the one that uh, decides whether or not the Sooners can, can go undefeated during the regular season. And I think uh, a lot of us are really excited um, that uh, the Big Ten is back. We'll talk a little bit more about them when we talk about four-game series. But Northwestern Michigan, we're also going to see Minnesota on our air as well in the, uh, in the upcoming month of April. Yeah, I, I think that I'm especially um, excited to be able to watch the Big Ten. Beth, I feel like <laughs> we're usually talking so much more about them, and it's just harder because we haven't been able to – watch them and put our eyes um, to what they're doing. But one thing that I feel like I've taken from the big 10, just looking at the stats and seeing how the games have gone down is that the big 10 actually really has some strong pitching with Northwestern and also Michigan. And I continue to see big strikeout numbers that those pitchers are putting up with, when I say big, I mean, 16, 17 strikeouts a game. So when you have that type of pitching, it can take you really far in the postseason. It can for sure take you to a regional, for sure take you to a super, maybe even take you to the World Series. So I, I'm really looking forward to be able to watch the the Big Ten in, in upcoming weeks. Yeah, you make a great point, Amanda. But I think too beyond that, you look at every single one of these conferences and some big matchups in April, and they're going to have conference regular season championship implications early. Uh, I look at the SEC and you have Bama, Arkansas, Arkansas doesn't play Florida this season. So that could be a huge series that determines if Arkansas is able to win the SEC. And then obviously Bama plays Florida. And with those two being the champions for the regular season, the last 12 years, obviously that's got implications. Then I go to the ACC and then all of a sudden you have Duke versus Virginia tech coming up in the next week, then Duke versus Florida state. That's going to be a huge uh, two weekends to determine who's going to win the ACC regular season. And then you talked about the Big Ten, that Northwestern versus Michigan matchup. Michigan and Northwestern right now are looking like the two top teams in that conference. And whoever wins that series is going to have such a good opportunity to win the league. So all across the board, I mean, this April has been is going to be phenomenal in terms of competition and what it means for these teams to win a championship. And sometimes we overlook that regular season championship because of the tournaments, but man, you show so much about your team, about their character, about their ability to win series. When you win your conferences, regular season, you guys are doing not only a good job of previewing the games to come, but also some player of the week nominees later in this show. What you got for us, Shro? You know who I'm really enjoying watching, and I, I never thought I would say it. I've been texting Jersey Meg about this, is the ACC. 
They are so competitive week in and week out. And I really think that when you think about postseason, they're preparing themselves with those four game conferences. It has a postseason feel every single weekend. Michelle, what have you been seeing? Yeah, the same thing with the ACC. First off, it's impressive how just a couple years ago, it was the Florida State show, right? And now look at how good Virginia Tech has come on the scene, but as well as Duke and Clemson, those two new programs, just think about it, Duke in just four years and Clemson in two years have really become leaders in the ACC. So I think that conference has changed things dramatically from the 2018 national championship that Florida state won that program. And, and that uh, conference is definitely on the rocket. So I, I agree with that hundred percent. And I love as well in the sec, the depth of the teams that we normally see middle lower pack are starting to really emerge to the top of the pack. And that would obviously be Arkansas, Kentucky. They had a huge series win over Bama. Sorry, bro. Um, and so, you know, there's just some things that you don't really expect to see that are popping up this year. It's just, it's a lot of fun. And really as a fan and as an analyst of the sport, it really makes this year intriguing. Well, and one of the things that you brought up Alabama, one of the things that Coach Murphy always says is tradition never graduates. But I think this year that's very true. Tradition didn't graduate. It's back. And the depth of the rosters is what has created so much of the parity that we're seeing within the conferences and with all of the teams. They've got pitching depth. They've got hitting maturity. And right now that's been the key to a lot of these conferences. All good stuff as we move forward into the month of April. Number three on our lineup card actually is a a, a closer look at the ACC. Uh, you know, we talked about the dominance of Florida State uh, over the years. They have Notre Dame this weekend and then the big Duke showdown. Amanda, you got a firsthand look at Duke and Clemson. We know the depth is better. Are those two, uh, they're right there near Florida State now, and Duke actually in first place heading into the weekend. Are they legitimate contenders from what you're seeing? Yeah, I absolutely think so. And this is a really close series too. So Duke ended up winning the first two games and then Clemson ended up winning the last two games. So they actually split, which, um, you know, actually didn't surprise me too much because when you looked at their numbers, batting average, ERA, like every single one of their numbers were so comparable. I think that one person in particular, one player that we need to start talking more about is Valerie Cagle. Uh, the pitcher for Clemson, she not is not just a pitcher. She can do it all. I don't recall ever calling a game or watching a, a series, I should say, where one person got the complete game win, got a save, had an outfield assist, and also hit the game-winning home run. Also was intentionally walked a couple of times. Like the fact that she can do it all. She's a fifth infielder on the dirt for Clemson as well. Like we need to start talking about her as truly one of the best players in the country, one of the best athletes in the country. And Beth, this stuck out to me too. They each came in on a win streak. One had a 17 game win streak. One had an 18 game win streak. Dukes got to 20 games, but how often do you get a chance to end one team's win streak, which was whenever Duke ended Clemson win streak but then Clemson got to turn right back around and beat Duke's win streak so I thought that was kind of a cool aspect of it as well like you kind of got that revenge like you beat us now we get a chance to beat you right back uh it's such a good it was a really great series man a lot of back and forth and I think the way that the best way I can think of of recognizing the greatness in these teams is that I forget that they're in their second and fourth years as programs. That's unbelievable to be able to be as strong as they are, to be as competitive as they are on a national scale is huge. And when, you know, Amanda and Michelle, I'm going to shout out the pitchers in the ACC, because when you look at the strengths of that conference and you look at the top three, four teams in the ACC, they're riddled with really good pitching. Duke, Clemson, Florida State, and Virginia Tech just own those top eight pitchers in the conference with the exception of Brittany Pickett from, from North Carolina, who is an outstanding hitting pitcher as well. But you look at Shelby Walters from Duke, Keely Richard from Virginia Tech, and you mentioned obviously Valerie Cagle, all around that one and under ERA. That's so impressive. So you have to be good. You have to have good pitching. And these teams, Duke and Clemson, are proving that they have really, really good pitching staffs. I can't agree with you enough, Kayla. And I, I was really looking 
forward at the Virginia Tech Duke series because I thought the Duke Clemson one was so good and you're trying to predict okay who's going to win this and you look at Keely Richard with a sub one ERA from Virginia Tech and you look at Duke's complete staff who is just dominant in the ERA categories and you think what's going to be the deciding factor of this series and I was really diving into some stuff that Virginia Tech is doing and and some things where I think Duke can improve on Duke has 33 errors on the year. They let a lot of runners get on base. Besides that, their their catchers are only throwing out less than 18% of stolen base attempts. So then I went and looked at Virginia Tech. How many bases are they stealing? They're very aggressive. Kelsey Brown is 16 for 16. Emma Ritter, 12 for 13. Cameron, Cameron Fagan, 7 for 10. And so I really think it's going to come down to who's going to play the cleanest softball this weekend. The pitchers are going to be dominant. It's going to come down to clean softball, limit base runners, and who's going to get the timely hits. And so I think right now, Virginia Tech, when I look at the numbers, may have the advantage. But when you look at just overall that eye test, you think Duke is rolling. Duke is dominant. So it makes her really interesting softball in the ACC. And one last thing uh, I think too about the ACC is Keely Rochard for like just as one individual pitcher is the best pitcher in the ACC. And that that's not to discredit anybody else. Valerie Cagle, Peyton St. George, Kaylin Arnold, but Keely Rochard is just in a different league to me with her strikeouts and what she can do, but she threw 33 innings in one week last week. So she's throwing almost every single game. And so I know we'll talk about this in a bit, but they're playing the four game series and she's taking on a huge load and also throwing the midweek games against Virginia. It's a lot for her. And so I'm interested to see as we continue on Beth, how that ends up panning out for Virginia tech and if she can stay healthy and fresh. Sometimes that's not a problem, but we have seen in the past when you get deep into the NCAA tournament and you, you show up in Oklahoma city with 250, 30 innings of work uh, that can catch up to you. So uh, something to watch, uh, you know, the, the workload for these pitchers through the season, especially since they uh, had shortened seasons last year. It's a conversation that a lot of major league teams are talking about right now with their pitchers more on opening day and all the, uh, the women that are making inroads in MLB uh, coming up later. Let's move on to number four in our lineup and uh, our four game series. We've, we've talked, we talked about a little bit in the ACC, uh, the big 10 playing the four game series, the PAC 12 playing the four game series. Um, and what's the word on the street, Shrell? What are coaches talking about? What are pitchers and hitters talking about? Anybody picking up advantages from a fourth game uh, that that could benefit them? I'll tell you one thing. The players hate it. I posted something the other day, (laughs) and I had so many of the UCLA players retweeting me just talking about their bodies, so they are not enjoying the four-game series at all. Um, One thing that's very interesting, I don't know if you guys saw, but Arizona State actually canceled one of their games this weekend, their fourth game. And they said it's not because of COVID, but it is because of COVID protocol rules. So essentially now because of COVID, you have to have a certain number of position players, pitchers, infielders, outfielders to be able to sub. And because Arizona State is down some arms, they are actually canceling one of their one of their four games. So uh, it's interesting to see that. Uh, yes, there's a four game series, but we're already seeing Arizona and Washington not being able to complete that. UCLA having to cancel Cal, Arizona State having to drop a game. So I really wonder how many games the pack is going to get in in total uh, when it's all said and done. Yeah, and Jen, Arizona State also canceled their midweek against BYU because they left that pitcher home. And so it's not just the four game series that are being affected. It's midweek games that some schools are really relying on for RPI. And so we've got to watch that as the year goes on as well. Michelle. Yeah. So I think the other thing that's interesting about this is that when I spoke to coaches prepping for the Washington, Arizona series, as well as ACC, when I I did a Virginia tech game, all the coaches, no matter what conference they're in, 
thinking now that they're in season, they're like, oh, I can't believe we decided to go for four game series, you know, but when they were making the decisions last fall, they didn't know what they didn't know. And they're like, this is brilliant. We're brilliant. And so now that they're in it, there's a little bit of a, a change of heart and mind, of course. Um, the thing that I don't like about it is, and Amanda had had this happen with the ACC series she called this weekend, is that a series can actually end in a split, a two-two split. So nobody wins the series. And and that's what I don't like. That's what's awesome about the three game series is that, you know, Kentucky can go and say, Hey, we, you know, we beat Alabama this series, the same thing. That three game series to me is just something about it um, on top of all the other issues that, that the four games actually take on. Can I, I, I want to ask you, Michelle, cause you've had the opportunity to talk to the coaches in the PAC 12 and maybe you Jen as well, but what is the objective of the fourth game in the pack that doesn't actually count? It counts obviously towards the overall record, but doesn't have conference implications I, I mean is it an opportunity to try and throw some different pitchers in or to get some young players in uh, I mean we saw in the Arizona State Washington series Gabby Plain pitched in that fourth game and they got the win but it, it doesn't count towards conference record so have you heard from them on what the objective is really yeah, so Coach Kendrea said that really what the rationale was is that they didn't know how many preseason games they were going to get, or pre-conference, excuse me, games they were going to get. So they thought, okay, we need games, so let's add this extra game. And if anything, well, it'll allow us to get some of our, our inexperienced ball players, our freshmen in, and and especially since we have big rosters. The problem, though, too, is that it's the second game of a doubleheader on Saturday. And in some areas where the weather may not be great, Washington, um, obviously, Eugene, uh, you know, Oregon State, all those communities where potentially there's some rainy conditions, that game three may in fact end up counting on Saturday if Sunday gets rained out. So really brought in a lot of tough decisions for the coaches. And I think in hindsight now, um, they're like, oh, maybe it wasn't the best thing. I do know that for next year, they're like, eh, the four game series is out once things get back to normal. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think a lot of it was probably, you know, everybody was so hungry to play games um, after uh, losing out on the postseason or, you know, on part of the season last year that they thought, well, it, the, uh, all, as many games as we can get would be great, but uh, that they maybe have to revisit that. So uh, the four game series will continue as for now and uh, certainly could have a major impact on some regular season championships. Number five on our lineup card. Glad you're with us on the seven innings podcast. Beth Moans, Michelle Smith, Amanda Scarborough, Jenny Dalton-Hill, Caleb Bro, Jen Schroeder. Let's talk about the Florida Gators and uh, a team that we uh, need to spend a little bit more time with because they have the Georgia Bulldogs coming up this weekend, and then their next SEC series would be in Tuscaloosa in a few weeks' time. So the Gators are fresh off of that LSU sweep, and uh, their, their pitching staff's looking pretty good. Um, Caleb bro, uh, Hannah Adams also looking really good in the batter's box. That sweep of LSU Beth was huge for Florida. I think to be able to go and get a quality top 25 opponent sweep is always a really big thing. I think if you start in the circle, Elizabeth Hightower is making a, a really good case for herself to be the SEC pitcher of the year with what she's done so far. She's undefeated in conference play and, and just has been really, really solid. Somebody that's emerged and has gotten better as her career has gone on. And then you mentioned Hannah Adams. Hannah Adams for me has been such a bright spot for the Gators and I look at her numbers right now, and yes, she's hitting above 450 overall, but her conference number, she's also hitting 455 in conference play, which tells me that when the competition is the toughest, you step up and you're ready to go and you're an absolute gamer. She leads the team in conference play with seven RBI. She's got a couple home runs. I mean, there's just a lot you can say about the Gators. Amanda, I think that you've seen them this season. What do you think of them? Yeah, I think that the thing that stands out to me is that Hannah Adams has had a terrific year, but we knew she could hit. We knew Eccles could hit. We knew Lindemann could hit, but we've been waiting to see what Florida had beyond those three players. And so when I looked at Florida's stats just from this weekend, Eccles and Lindemann actually were at the bottom of batting average in terms of just series numbers. Florida hit 373 as a team this weekend against LSU had 21 RBI and Eccles and Lindemann again, were at the bottom. So Cottrell, Lindsay, Hoover, these were players that were able to step up and give Florida an offensive depth 
in their lineup that we haven't seen yet, but that coach Walton knew that they were capable of and saw in the fall. Um, and you mentioned high tower, Kayla, I mean, two complete games. She threw 14 innings for them against a good LSU team. And I feel like she's just really coming to her own this year. Yeah, I think it was interesting when I called the um, LSU Florida game on Saturday, it was very interesting to note how well-rounded Florida is in all areas of the game. As you mentioned, Hannah Adams in the batting. But remember, this was a freshman second baseman who did not commit an error her entire freshman year. I mean, so much fun to watch. The defense for Florida lights out. Hightower as well. You know, she reminds me of the pitchers that almost say, hey, I'm throwing you a screwball and here it comes on three different planes and and teams still aren't hitting it. So, and and I know Jen, you know a little bit about that with um, the the UCLA uh, history of the screwball and just one pitch and how you you can win a national championship with it. Oh, you mean Megan Langenfeld, just that little pitcher? (laughs) One thing about Florida, I know in in talking to Coach Walton earlier in the year, he was frustrated with their offense. And when you look at how well they're doing in the month of March, specifically late March heading into April, their last two series, they scored 40 runs, 21 this past weekend. You have to go all the way back to their second week of play, February 28th to total 40 runs. So what they've done in two weekends, it took them an entire month to do the month prior. So we always say you don't win national championships in February, you don't win in March, but Florida may be getting hot at the right time. Well, and we talk pitchers a lot. So right now their team ERA is a 1.43. Their whip is under one at a 0.84. But for me, the difference for Florida, we always know that they will have strong defense. They have only 14 errors on the year. And as I'm watching the rest of the SEC play right now, it is not clean. And because defense isn't clean, that's what's allowing teams to get back into the ball game late especially in that Alabama series, it was errors that caused that to happen over the weekend. So for me, the key is that strong defense that we know Florida, Florida always brings and Tim Walton just prepares them defensively. If there's a pitcher out there that's going to be in the circle this weekend, could you please yell to the batters, hey, I'm throwing on three planes. We would love to get that on television if we could, just for Smitty's peace of mind. Um <laughs> Arkansas is at Auburn in the SEC this week. Can they stay undefeated? Kentucky and Tennessee this weekend. I think it's probably huge for Tennessee. They're already in 10th place. They don't want to fall too far back of the pack. And that that Arkansas team, best SEC start ever. And also, is it time to panic at South Carolina and Mississippi State? They're starting out over right now in the conference. That's what's happening around the SEC this weekend. Hey, time to move up uh, down down the lineup card. Number six, the bunting is all over Major League Ballparks. It's opening day, and and a lot of ladies are involved. We're excited. You got Kim Ng, the new GM at Miami. Um, Alyssa Nacken, San Francisco. Rachel Balkovic with the Yankees. Bianca Smith, Boston. Uh, my friend Rachel Folden is with the Chicago Cubs working uh, with the hitters. So uh, opening day excitement, ladies. Who wants to jump in on this one? Well, I'll just uh, real quick just say I think it's about time. I mean, it's yeah. – it's. Uh, I feel like baseball was the last of the men's sports to really welcome in women uh, in, in any position. So I think it's exciting on many different levels that we have women that are hitting coaches that are involved in uh, decision-making. And, you know, I always like to talk about the diamond sports. There's so much similarities. And for many years, we tried to say how different baseball was from softball. But really, when you think about the sports, there's a lot of crossover. We are the diamond sports. We're two thirds of what baseball is uh, as far as the size of our um, our diamonds and in in our field. So I just think that the, it's great to see that these women are involved. And hopefully this is just the start and there's going to be many, many more. What do you think? I watched an interview, Beth, that you did with Rachel Folden, and I listened to a clip of hers that I absolutely loved. She said, we don't need more women in baseball. We need more qualified women in baseball. And I think that what we're seeing is these women setting examples, these women being people that little girls can look at and want to be, and now they can work towards 
entering a space that has been dominated by men. I want to give a little shout out to Rachel Luba, who is not a softball player, but she's a UCLA athlete. She was a gymnast who just negotiated Trevor Bauer's contract, which was the largest pitching deal in MLB history. Um, just broke Garrett Coles from last year, actually, another Bruin. And we're in the final four. Just had to throw that out there, everybody. <laughs> Uh, but what I think is so cool is that you're not just seeing women enter the space. You're seeing women who are really great at their craft dominating their specific space in the sport. And I think that's really cool. Jenny, I know you have a lot of ties in the sport. So what do you think about all this? You know, I played baseball after college. I played with the Colorado Silver Bullets in 1997. Then that team folded because of funding and it sat dormant for a long time. But then USA Baseball actually started a women's team in 2004, and that's been going strong ever since. I would really like to just put out there that the women that you're seeing entering these MLB spaces are not token women. These women are entering with qualified resumes. They are stepping in with a career that they have tried to pioneer through a male-dominated society and they have had to stand tall and be alone in a lot of these arenas. And I am just so proud that they are finally getting the opportunity to stand up and be what now young women can see they can be themselves be as well. At Mizzou this last weekend, they had an entire day talking about, I am a woman, I am an athlete, a Billie Jean King quote. And the thing that Larissa Anderson said about that day was if they can see it, they can be it. And I think right now that's what Major League Baseball is finally giving us a chance to do. Give little girls an opportunity to see what they can be. Amanda? Yeah, Rachel, I think, or Rachel. Yeah, Jenny, I was going to talk about Rachel because I was going to talk about Rachel Balkovec. I think that's how you say her last name. And sorry, Beth, if if I'm mispronouncing it, but I I just want to give her a shout. She became the first woman hired to be a full-time hitting coach for an MLB team, currently working for the Yankees. She also spent some time with the Astros and a strength and conditioning type role. Uh, But, you know, at one point, I'm just reading about her here in 2013, she was just waitressing and working at Lululemon. She had applied to 15 different teams, didn't hear back. So she changed her name from Rachel to Ray and finally started to get some callbacks and she played softball at New Mexico. And now here she is just finding a way to make things happen, knowing that she's fully qualified, knowing that she has the knowledge and the, the, um, expertise to be able to do it, Jen. Well, and one thing about her, I think is so cool is she was actually at the St. Pete elite Clearwater Invitational. Sorry, Michelle. I know I screwed that up completely, but it's so cool because it's so close to spring training, right? So you're seeing those women come back. Uh, But one little side note, Jenny, I need you to know I was obsessed with the silver bullets. I was them for Halloween. I homemade my costume. I wanted to be a silver bullet so bad. I still have it. I'm going to try and find it in my mom's attic and wear it on our next show, my silver bullets costume or put it on Rudy or something. I don't know. I'll wear my jersey too. I got you. I have I have a big question though for our very own Beth. Beth got to call play by play for the Cubs, the first woman to ever get the opportunity to do that, Beth. Like, what was that like for you? And just tell us all about it. So the uh the Cubs, of course, spring training is in Mesa. We we didn't get a chance to go down there, but we were um at uh, Wrigley Field in the booth and they set up, you know, basically like our same home kits for us to call. And it it was just incredible just to be in Wrigley Field. I've been there as a fan. And, you know, for for us announcers growing up, we didn't want to be the guy down on the field or the girl down on the field. The show, for me, is up in the booth. And so I'm really excited. I think uh, in May I'll have a chance to do a a few regular season games and then a handful of others over the course of the season. But – it's great. And one of the things I love during the year is to, you know, follow some of the major leaguers and every once in a while they're firing off stuff about a softball game that they watched or about a player that they watched. Um, and we actually, uh, I work with Jim Deshays um, on the uh, uh, Cubs games, former MLB pitcher. And for our game, I, I believe AJ Andrews had a catch the like the week before, like a diving layout catch or something they had found on the internet and we actually talked about that. We, you know, when I, we, they were talking about me coming over from softball, they all knew about AJ Andrews. They all knew about Aaliyah Andrews at, at LSU because she's been all over Sports Center in recent um, 
weeks with all her fabulous plays defensively. So it's really exciting that they they are genuinely interested in the bat and ball sports in softball and and I'm excited to to um, you know talk about the Cubs and and be a part of those broadcasts coming up and and like we've all said I, I think it's important and one of the things we loved about Jessica Mendoza um, and when she first broke into the booth and, and continues to do so for ESPN is just to see the faces and hear the voices um, was huge for a lot of Chicago Cubs fans and and the um, the feedback that we got. So very excited for that in, in, uh, in the coming months and, and over the summer with the Chicago Cubs. Woo. MLB opening day for a lot of teams. I believe it's uh, well, it's probably happening now while you're listening to the podcast uh, time now to go into the seventh spot in the order. And, you know, we're always trying to stay cutting edge. We're always trying to, uh, to uh, be innovative and do new things. And Amanda Scarborough uh, has discovered that the fans <laughs> love the mailbag, love, love, love the mailbag. So Amanda, what are, what have they put in our post office box this week? What do the fans want to know from the seven innings podcasters? Well, sign seal delivered straight into our replies or mentions. Nice. Um, Austin, or sometimes known as Aussie, he's from Houston, big AM fan. So I'm probably a big Aussie fan here, but he wants to know which team is better, the 2013 Oklahoma or the 2021 Oklahoma? What do you guys think? I, I will I will give the nod right now to the more than ourselves uh, 2013 Oklahoma Sooners, that, that team that won the national championship after um, that uh, cat fight or the, uh, the tornado rolled through Moore, Oklahoma and there was so much um, emotion around that run to the World Series, and that team just was fabulous throughout the year. They had the pitching. They had the hitting. They had the defense, um, and they have the ring right now. So I think the jury is out on 2021, but it's going to be very tough to beat 2013, although I, I think an undefeated season would probably do that, Smitty. <laughs> it would. Um, so – I agree with you. I think in the 2013 team, when you start rattling off the name, Shelby Penley, uh, Destiny Martinez, uh, Kehlani Ricketts, hitting pitcher. I mean, you just start looking at the the bats, the names, the Jessica Schultz behind the dish. Um, just a really, really complete team. Uh, and, I, and I think you're exactly right. I think we're at a point in the season where we can start to talk about it. But the strength of schedule right now for Oklahoma is one thing to be addressed. And I do feel like um, this is obviously a very strong Oklahoma team not taking anything away from them. I'm excited to see them challenged and, and see how that brings out the best in this year's 2021 team. What do you think, Kayla? Uh, well, I think what the 2013 team has that maybe the 2021 team hasn't discovered yet is they had a little bit of a chip on their shoulder and they had some adversity. Uh, they might have lost uh, the championship in 2012. I don't know. <laughs> maybe I knew that was coming. Bro is taking. Bro is taking responsibility for the chip on the 2013 Oklahoma team shoulder. I knew it was coming. Yeah, they had a chip and they had the the leadership and the upperclassmen and not to discredit somebody like a G. Juarez, but Kaylani Ricketts was easily the best pitcher that I ever faced in my career. I think she's one of the best pitchers in the history of college softball. So I think when you add her to the mix, I think she's what separates that 2013 from the 2021 team as of right now we got a long way to go though why is she the best Kayla I forget what was her favorite pitch that curve that like dropped off the plate away from lefties some people call it I think it's called the crop duster is that (laughs) yeah yeah that was miserable Am I crazy to think, though, that talent for talent, if you went through and compared hitter to hitter, position to position, that this 2021 team is more talented than the 2013 team? Jenny? And I'm going to I'm going to come at you from the 1990s where talent doesn't always win ballgames. I'm not saying I'm not saying that this team's better. I'm just saying I feel like talent-wise, if you put them head to head, they may be more talented. Number-wise, I'll give you that. I think number-wise, that is definitely going to come in where they've gained confidence, right? Undefeated, 25 and 0. They're going to have a ton of home runs. Their pitchers are going to have a lot of experience. But back to Beth's point, when she started, they don't have a ring. And to me, if you don't wear the ring, 
you don't get the mention. And because nobody looks to see who came in second that year, except for me when I look at 1995. But I'm just saying, when it comes... It's coming too. I I heard the undercurrent in talent doesn't always win championships. I knew it. Well, Beth, that's, that's why you're our leader. You know before we even say it. Hey, tell me what happened. Tell me what happened in 1995. Did Ozzy um, know this? Well, was actually, I'm gonna have to say in '95, there's actually no winner because you got stripped. But I didn't bring it up. I'm just saying that. So, but honestly, I really think it does come down to the ring. If you win you're in the conversation and I'm not saying that they're not going to win but I want to see the proofs in the pudding I want to see at the end where do you finish and then we'll have that conversation I think on June 4th you or June 10th you may be able to have that uh head-to-head by position breakdown Jen Shro. yeah my, I, I wish we were all in the same real quick I just want to say I wish we were all in the same room because I think there could have almost been a little go out with the Jen and Jenny and then there everyone's shoulders would have big chips falling off of them and it, it, this was oh, disgusting. whatever happened to vacated they only won the one championship and then we never heard from them again go ahead Scarborough <laughs> <laughs> well you, you talked a lot about their hitters but think about G. Juarez, Shannon Stell, Nicole May on this staff versus Michelle Gascoigne and Kaylani Ricketts I mean they were pretty tough in 2013 too. Okay. Moving on. This is from, uh, Cindy Ellis living in Jacksonville, Alabama, but plot twist. She's a Gators fan living in Alabama. She wants to know who are the best all time and current nine hole hitters in the country. What do you guys think? What comes to mind? I think Jen at UCLA, you guys have a pretty good nine hole hitter. I, I, you know, I have it written down and I just didn't want to start it and be the UCLA girl again, but Kelly Gooden <laughs> is unreal. She led the Pac-12 in batting average a few years back. She just finds a way to get on base and create havoc on the base pads. She truly is so talented. She can drop a drag bunt. She could hit a double. She is a fearless batter and she really just, she gets it done. Like plain and simple, she gets it done at the plate. You know, it's funny because when you think about really good nine hole hitters, I often think about those like lefty slappers or kind of diverse uh, hitters that can do a lot and turn the lineup over. That's really the good sign of a good nine hole hitter is how can I get the top of the lineup back up? And Alyssa Brown for Alabama is a really strong one. Uh, Tate Whitley's kind of an unknown one. She plays for Ole Miss. She actually leads the team in batting average right now. Another lefty slapper. And it's interesting because so many times you think, a coach is going to automatically put a player into the one or two spot if they can rotate that lineup over or put them somewhere else if they have that good of a batting average. But sometimes teams need a pick-me-up at the end that's going to say, hey, you know, the nine spot's going to get better pitches. They're going to get a, a few better strikes thrown at them because of just being in that nine spot, unfortunately. But there's some hitters that just thrive there and love the challenge of the nine spot and know their job and do it really, really well. What do you think, Michelle? Um, well, I'm just real quick. I'm going to throw one in here um, that I think over this last weekend, Riley Smith for Kentucky was just outstanding. She hit a out of the nine spot. She hit the home run to tie up the game against Alabama and then had the winning hit in the eighth inning to win it. So Riley Smith doing a great job for KU. Jenny, what do you think? Well, and that's the one I was thinking of too. I mean, I did not expect Smith to hit that home run and then to also get the game winning hit on the, just the slap that went to shortstop. But I also think, we often forget that a, a leadoff hitter, when they start to struggle, a coach will put them to two and then their next spot is nine. And it goes back to what you were saying, Kayla, because they do see better pitches in that nine spot. And a lot of them do really thrive in that category to be able to flip the lineup, but not clog the bases. That's the key. When you flip the lineup, you've got rabbits at the top that need to be able to move. And then those big hitters that fall in three, four, five. And so the key to a number nine hitter being really successful is actually a lot like a leadoff. Beth? The risk reward there, of course, is you're running the the risk of having a 400 hitter down there with fewer at-bats. And, uh, you know, we've seen that before as well, where you don't get to that nine hitter in the seventh inning uh, to give them an opportunity to utilize that 400 average, Amanda. You know, one more that I've found is actually we're talking to Oklahoma, but this year's Oklahoma team recently, at least has had Nicole Mendez in the nine spot, who is a player has a lot of postseason experience, a veteran for them. Okay. Last one. This is from Renster from Brooklyn, New York, uh, favorite team 
Florida. Out of all the games that you have called, which one has been your all-time favorite? Beth, have you given this one any thought? Oh, this is going to wow. be hard for you. Wow. Uh, you know, the <laughs> 17 innings game was, uh, was pretty, pretty cool, especially considering the fact that behind the scenes, um, it, I had already told everybody in the truck as the game was getting underway, I love this early start. We'll be home for dinner and it'll still be light out. Um, we were almost home for breakfast at dawn, uh, after the seven innings game. So that Smitty, that that's probably, uh, my, my, uh, my best memory. And also, uh, the one that uh, the entire crew was spitting bullets at me for. I, I would concur. I think that was one of my favorite, uh, games on many levels, BMO. Um, and yes, that, that is absolutely true that she said that. I think my funniest moment in the game is when, I think we were about in the 12th inning and my phone told me it was time for me to go to bed to get a good night's sleep. And obviously that didn't happen for another five innings. So who else? What's what's someone else's favorite game? I'm going to go back to uh, my first year of calling games. Uh, I was actually uh, in an airport on my way to go do some studio work for Super Regionals and got a call and um, it was, hey, we need you to go and go to Lafayette, Louisiana and call the Raging Cajuns versus Arizona Super Regional to go to the World Series kind of this last minute. So I was rerouted and got to call a game and it went down to the third game and the third game. I mean, if you've ever watched a game in Lafayette, you know, the fans are absolutely crazy. It was loud and it was my first postseason experience calling games. And it was just such a cool atmosphere. Louisiana ended up coming from behind. They won. They booked themselves a trip to the world series. The crowd goes wild. It was just like one of those moments you get chill bumps when you think about it. And being in my first year and experiencing something like that was pretty stinking cool. Well, when it comes to calling games, you know, I try to do the act like you've been there. I mean, that's how you were at Arizona. When you'd win a big game, it wasn't the big celebrate on the field. It was just act like you've been there, like walk off show class, but I'll say it was intimidating for me. So this is a shout out to you, Jen. It was intimidating for me to walk back into UCLA stadium in 2019 and do regionals there. I had not been back on that campus since I played. And it was, it was one of those, like, I would get, I got like my heart started to race and I started to be anxious. I'm like, what is the big deal? It's just a softball game, but it's just the idea. I was walking onto enemy territory and I had to make sure I was in the right frame of mind to talk to Kelly. I and make sure that we handled that game with respect because UCLA is one of those perennial powerhouses that, I respect ridiculously knowing what they bring to the table every year. And then for them to go on and win the national championship. Amanda, on the flip side of that, Jenny walked into enemy territory, but how did you feel? I know a Florida fan asked this during that Florida A&M super regional where Tori Vidalis hits the home run and then Jordan Matthews ends up coming and hitting the home run to advance to the world series, being an A&M person calling that game. I'm sure that had to be memorable Uh. for you. Very memorable. I don't know if I would consider it my favorite, although it was one that came to mind. I mean, it's just hard, you know, like, but that, that was an incredible moment. And that's a moment that people are still talking about when Jordan Matthews hit the walk-off home run against A&M game three to send them to the women's college world series. That one absolutely comes to mind. I also think about Rachel Garcia's home run in the world series against Washington, um, that was a super memorable one back in 2019. Um, and just my first Jenny, my, my actual first game was at UCLA. And I remember being like you just wide eyed, like, Oh my God, I'm at UCLA calling my first game, like the UCLA. And so Missouri ended up beating them. So that's super memorable too. And a super regional Missouri beat UCLA, Chelsea Thomas, just like, Whoa, what just happened here? So a lot of really good memories, Beth. From Amanda, I have to this. say, I remember listening to you for the first time in that game and I was watching it with my dad and my dad was like, that girl's a good announcer. Just want to throw, oh that, throw that out there. Want to throw I that was out so there, nervous. Maria. Nobody wanted to tell me that at one time we were simulcasting on all three networks. So ESPNU, ESPN and ESPN2 because other games got done early and we were like the last one to play on Sunday with all these open time slots. But anyway, I'm so happy they didn't tell me. I would have been just get out of my mind. So. Nobody's fa- favorite game was working with me and Smitty for the first time. I mean, you know, fine. I can have that. That was, that was me last year. I appreciated and, that. And can we clear up something else? I know a lot. Some people call it soda. Some people call it pop. 
bro referred to them as chill bumps. Is that a thing in America? Not goosebumps, <laughs> or is that just a, a, a Eugene thing? Did I say that? <laughs> Which may now be. I got the chills and goosebumps as I I just emerged. (laughs) Again, we're an innovative bunch here on the Seven Innings podcast. I think it's time now to move. uh, Scarborough, is that the end of the mailbag? Yeah, yeah. Let's we'll we'll have another mailbag coming. You know, next week. But great questions, thanks, fans. Questions, right? At Seven Innings podcast, we got a lot to come. It's time to to do a little shag and stance right now. This week on Shaggin' Stats. Okay, in the absence of Holly Rowe, hopefully back next week on the show, I'll jump into things. My Shaggin' Stats uh, is the McNeese Cowgirls, 27 double plays in 32 games, by far and away the most in the country. And I think what is most significant about this, listen to the teams they've played to get those double plays. McNeese, Texas A&M. Texas, UL, Florida, UCF, Oklahoma State, Baylor, Duke, LSU, and they actually got a win against Arkansas. That You talk about strength of schedule. Uh, shout out to their infield, Aaliyah Ortiz, Kaylee Cross, uh, Sarah Geyer, Corey McCrary, Haley Brindley, McNeese Cowgirls, turning two. I'm going to go with the number four, and that is going to be Abby Sweet from Notre Dame had four hit by pitches in one game, not to mention she had two more in the doubleheader of the other game that day, but credit Abby sweet from Notre Dame, huge weekend for her. She's the ACC player of the week. She hit 538 on the weekend. She, uh, excuse me, she hits 538 on this season, not even just the weekend. So she's a stud. She's got five home runs on the year, 42 hits. She's just all around really good. Doesn't get enough credit for Notre Dame, but uh, I don't know if I've ever heard of anybody that gets hit by a pitch four times in one game. And she's on my fantasy team and hit by pitches are zero points. So I'm not salty at all, but I want to give a little love to uh, Braxton Burnside from Arkansas this past weekend. She hit her 17th home run, which tied their single season record. And it just so happens to also be my baby sister's record. So she's soon to be the new single season record. As soon as she hits one more, she will surpass my sister as the all-time leader. So congrats to Braxton. Do you, don't you still get points though for on base percentage? No, only when she steals a base, but zero it's, we need to go back to the drawing board and redo the scoring system because I think it's messed up. (laughs) Yet Jen is undefeated and she's still salty about it. So uh, (laughs) not competitive at all. Um, So my shag and stat is going to go to the state of Arizona where university of Arizona finally got to plan their home field in the Arizona air. They had four games against Oregon state in three days, hit 12 home runs. Remember they were on that road trip where they had nine games in two weeks. And also they were in Florida and Seattle. They only hit 11 home runs in two weeks and they hit 12 in three days this weekend. So Arizona finding their batch, Jenny. Well, and in that road series, I mean, just against Florida state and Washington, they had 52 strikeouts. So that's going to be to my shagging stat. Um, there are three players in the country right now with no strikeouts and at least 60 at-bats. Oklahoma, Kinsey Hansen has 75 at-bats with no strikeouts. Texas, Janae Jefferson has 68 at-bats with no strikeouts. And Howard bringing in number three, Camille Navarro, has 60 at-bats with no strikeouts. To me, that's really difficult. Wow, those are big numbers. All right, and I'm going to go with um, 39 to seven 39 to seven that's not a record but that is 39 home runs burnside has hit the 17 malkin 12 gibson 10 so those three arkansas hitters have hit 39 home runs which is more than seven sec teams combined home runs per team so it's pretty amazing and actually it was eight until texas a&m hit six home runs last night so uh pretty impressive that just those three hitters have more home runs together than seven teams within the SEC Wowzers. That Lenny Malkin home run from this past weekend went 312 feet. I've never seen anything like it. It went to the middle of the parking lot at Bogle Park. It was wild. Professor Smith, do we need to investigate whether the air in Fayetteville is similar to the air in Tucson? 
You know what, BMO? I think we do need to go back and, and take a look at that because I was even looking at most career home runs in Division One history. And when you start counting out the athletes who have hit them, um, one, two, three, four, five, six, six of the eight are from Arizona. So, wow, yeah. I think she's questioning Jenny Dalton Hill's talent right there. And, and what is happening on the podcast today? Man, can we be friends again? I, I promise I like UCLA. Michelle, bats have gotten better. We had to hit with a tree trunk. I'm just going to say it. I, agree with that. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. And some of those, they were all with the yellow ball, none or none with the white ball. So there you go. A little help. Uh, let's all come together and celebrate some coaching milestones, right? Didn't we have a couple of uh, who who uh, broke some barriers, uh, Shro? Yeah, we had two female coaches in the SEC, Beth Tarina with her 400th win, and Courtney Dyfel. I mean, guys, she's so good right now. 200 wins. Big round of applause for the both of them. Congratulations. And that's just at their respective schools, so that's yeah. impressive. Right. Jenny, did you have somebody else? Yeah, also at Northwestern, Coach Kate Drohan and Carol Drohan have now the most program wins in school history. They are now 643 program wins at Northwestern. That was Shagging Stats. Awesome, awesome stuff. Well played, everybody. Well played. Uh, Speaking of well played, uh, down the bottom of the order, we talked about the best nine hitters. So we'll put them in our player of the week nods. I'm going to throw out a couple of names. Uh, Mary Half had a, a 3-0 weekend. She is the NCAA wins leader at midweek, 17 of them. And how about Northwestern's Morgan Newport, who was 2-0 last week, including a three-hit shutout, hit 615 with two home runs. I, I will toss those names uh, in the hopper. Who else we got? JDH? I'm going to throw in UMass Lowell's Courtney Cashman. She's a grad student, so in her fifth year, she started every game of her five years. But this past week, she was six for 10, nine RBI, four home runs, 10 walks, two stolen bases. Oh, yeah. So she went four for four in the home opener of the doubleheader against Merrimack and in the fifth inning hit a grand slam. And in the second game of the doubleheader versus U Albany, ended it in a run rule with a two run home run. Okay, she gets my vote, but I, I, what? Sorry. What's her name again? Courtney Courtney Cashman. She was the high performer in fantasy this week. If you're wondering, Beth, she by far killed everyone in fantasy softball. We have a front runner. We have a front runner. She even gets my vote, but I want to give a little shout out to Mac Leonard of Illinois State. She was six for seven, three home runs, six RBIs three walks, a 2,200 slug percentage, a 909 on base percentage. Incredible weekend for Mac, but I don't know if it outdoes Courtney's in my mind. <laughs> Bro? I'm going to throw out another one, and it's just it's a redemption player of the week, Alyssa Palomino Cardoza. Uh, she reached base 12 out of the 15 times this weekend against Oregon State. She was 8 for 11 with five extra base hits, and that was after having really bad two weeks against Florida State. She had 6 Ks. She thinks she was 0 for against Washington. Washington on the weekend so to her for her to come back and have the weekend that she did I, I think she's the redemption player of the week for me yeah. in oh, final, I think she, oh sorry in her final six at bats she was six for six with a walk-off grand slam yeah so I don't know I mean Courtney Cashman Alyssa oh, Palomino yeah. Cordoza there may be a vote off here because uh, APC really she got it done well, and I love that redemption too, Kayla, because I think it was in her last five games she was hitless going into that. So that to me shows the mentality of just flipping the switch. You're back at home where the ball flies, right, Michelle? So let's take advantage and just start letting it fly. Yeah. By the way, her uh, her partner there, uh, Jesse Harper, four home runs to the total now. It's 84. She is 11 away from tying the all-time record. Um who, who's for Cashman? Who's for Cashman? One, two, three, four. All right, it's Courtney Cashman. On the strength of her fantasy points, I think, put her over the top. Congrats to Lou, UMass Lowell and Courtney, our seven innings podcast player of the week. Did we miss anything uh, this week, ladies, other than Holly Rowe, who we, we hope to have back with us next week? Another darn good show. I think the challenge for me right now is I've got some I've got some names here. Uh, Chill Bumps is a nice name for an episode. Uh, Still Salty is a good name for an episode. 
but I'm leaning towards the not only the instructional uh, aspect of this, but also that it may instigate new Twitter fights. I think it's Tag the Trail Runner is going to be the name of this week's podcast. Tag the Trail Runner. Um, we like to teach, and uh, then we like to sit back and, and watch uh, the fireworks go off. So great job, everybody, on the Seven Innings podcast on the road to the Women's College World Series. Beth Mullins, Michelle Smith, Amanda Scarborough, Jenny Dalton-Hill, Caleb Bro, Jen Schroeder. See you down the line.